I'm Father John Tveit, the editor of the Josias, and this is the Josias Podcast, a conversation today about education. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon. Welcome to my co-host Amanda and to our two special guests today, Deacon Harrison Garlick and Mr. Chris Ruchtershelm. A little bit of an introduction for our to our uh, our guest, Deacon Garlick, is the Chancellor and in-house counsel for the Diocese of Tulsa and Oklahoma. He is a husband and father. He's a tutor at um, Tulsa's Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture, and he's the co-host of Ascend, the Great Books podcast, among many other hats I'm sure he wears. Uh, Mr. Chris Ruchtershell is a husband and father as well. He's a public school teacher, one of my own high school teachers, in fact. And he's the founder of Septem Artes Liberales, a curriculum in the classical liberal arts. So before we begin our conversation today, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. These days, I think we have to admit it's becoming harder and harder for Catholic parents to send their children to public schools in many places, like in New York, where I, I'm from myself. Uh, but we also have to admit that many parents are often unhappy sending their children to the local parochial school, where sometimes they're likely to get little better than the secular education they could get for free in the public schools. So we see in recent years, especially, there's been a very dramatic rise in alternatives to both public school and, and parochial school. Alternatives like homeschooling among Catholic families. Uh, there's been a real proliferation of homeschool groups and co-ops in our country, families trying to help one another in this alternative approach to education. Our faith tells us that parents, of course, have the primary responsibility for their children's education. And so many are taking matters into their own hands. But of course, we have to admit that, that homeschooling too has its drawbacks and uh, it's not a reasonable possibility for everyone. Apart from the education of our children, there's also the important issue of, of us adults continuing our education, in part perhaps to supplement what we were given as children, but more generally to grow in our knowledge of the truth so that we may grow ever closer to the truth, God himself. So this episode is about building a truly and integrally Catholic education, one which can set children up for a life of holiness, for a life of faith, rather than bringing up another generation of baptized pagans, and one which will help us all grow closer to God no matter our age. What could be more important for building a genuinely Catholic society, which of course is our focus at the Josias, than proper education? So our guests, each in his own way, is contributing to this ongoing conversation about education. So, uh, Deacon Garlic, perhaps we could start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about these these ventures of yours that I mentioned, the the Alquin Institute and your podcast? 
Sure, I'm happy to. You know, first, thanks for having me on. Been a long time fan of the podcast. I'm very much in debt, I think, to the Josias and to uh, the thought of Potter Edmund. So thank you. There are a lot of good things going on in the Diocese of Tulsa. Uh, you know, one of them that comes to mind is we actually just launched our first classical school. So our cathedral school, which was actually started by St. Catherine Drexel. So it started by a saint 100 years ago as a black and Indian mission school. Uh, about, I don't know, three or four years ago, uh, it dwindled down to 80-something students. And so uh, Bishop blessed my efforts to go start an envisioning team on how could we flip this school. We can't let it close. It was started by a saint. It's our cathedral school. What could we do? And so, of course, I think most of us are familiar with the pattern that's happened around the country of struggling Catholic schools that have switched to classical and have boomed. And so the nice thing about this pattern now is it actually uh, appeals to people uh, for non-liberal arts reasons, right? Uh, and there's a utilitarian aspect to it. So in certain ways, it's an easy pitch. And so we did it. We decided to flip to a classical school. Uh, it is now booming. We have over 200 kids, and uh, we are discerning starting a high school now. So I think that I've been very blessed, I think, uh, to see the school get off the ground. And I think one thing that's been on my heart and others is that you know we send our kids to the school in a lot of ways, receiving an education that we did not receive. And I think this is the goal of the parent, right? We want our children to be better educated than we are. And I'm a convert. So I, I grew up in some amalgamation of uh, Methodist, charismatic, non-denominational thereof. It's Oklahoma. It's very fluid out here. And I became Catholic after my uh, undergrad. I went out to Ave Maria University and converted while I was going through the master's program. So my daughter, just as like a comparison... You know, she's learning her prayers in Latin, things that I didn't learn until I was in college, right? She's learning the cardinal virtues, something that's really basic. But I, you know, my Christian tradition didn't have any touch point with that. So I didn't study that until, you know, I was an undergrad. So I think for all parents, right, there's this heart of just like, I want my parents, or excuse me, I want my children to be better formed than I am. I want them to have an education that I wish I would have received. And I think our local classical school uh, is doing that. And I very much support it. But one of the things that's popped up then is like, well, I want to be able to have conversations with my children. So if my child starts to read the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, I'd like to have at least some notion of what's going on. And this is where I think the great books come in. And I, I really do see the, the great books as, as a supplement in certain ways, a remedial effort. But for me, the great books are very integrated into my conversion. When I went to Ave Maria, we had uh, a great book sequencing as part of our master's program, which I thought was a brilliant effort, and I really appreciated it. So we had our typical systematic theology classes you would take, and then we had also a ancients and modern seminar where all the master's students and PhDs would get together and read these great texts. And if you're not familiar with that term, the great books, it's somewhat misleading at times because uh, great in that context means impact in a lot of ways, right? Not uh, truth. And so, you know, there are some very uh, great texts, right? You have Plato's Republic, you have uh, the works of Aristotle, you have St. Augustine, you have Boethius, you have Dante, you have St. Thomas Aquinas, ones that I think we would turn to. But then you also have, you know, some people like Machiavelli and Locke and Hobbes, you know, things like this. And so the great books are, are picked mainly for their impact on culture, not necessarily for their truth. But in a lot of ways, we're downstream from them, right? Everyone's a disciple of somebody. Everybody thinks like someone else, but most people don't realize it. So a lot of people in our culture are disciples of, say, Locke or Nietzsche, but they've never read either, right? So in a certain way, I think the nice thing about great books is you can start to reclaim your own intellect because you start to understand the origin of ideas and where things came from. And sometimes you see things that you're familiar with that you don't even agree with. So a lot of my efforts after Ave Maria 
was that I really was captured by the idea of the great books, of actually reading like chronologically through them, reading these primary texts and getting together in small groups. I think fraternity is really big, right? Having this iron sharpens iron, opening your house, having hospitality. So I did I did some efforts, you know, some worked, some didn't. You know, you start reading groups and it's always kind of an ad hoc uh, disaster at times. But about a year ago or so, um, a bunch of mainly parents, actually, a bunch of young men, it's all men, who have children in the classical school for the most part, really had a desire and learn to learn the great books. They would like, I want to read these things before my kids do. Most of their kids are in elementary school. They're not going to read the Iliad yet, but I want to read the Iliad, right? I want to be, I want to be familiar with these things. And this really has created a certain hunger and drive. And so for about a year and a half now, I've had what I call the Sunday great books. And these are just men that come to my house once a month and we read something together. And I think one thing about the great books is you have to have patience because you read things, you read things slowly. A lot of times people talk about the great books. It's like, okay, tonight we're going to talk about the Iliad or the next week about Machiavelli and then Pope John Paul II. And then we'll bounce back to Plato. And that gets difficult. And I, what I've realized is if you have to start telling someone why it's a great book, you've missed the chance. Like you've just messed up, right? And so we just got done reading um, Homer. We read the Iliad for six months and we read the Odyssey for six months, just one book a week, four books a month, and had good conversations over scotch and charcuterie boards and built a lot of fraternity. And I think that what the men have really come to appreciate is they really start to understand then, you know, where our culture comes from. They also start to understand things like how Providence used, say, like the Greeks to cultivate the world for the coming of Jesus Christ, right? They start to see how some of these questions, these perennial questions uh, about man, how we live, what does it mean to be a good human? You know, do we have free will under, say, divine will? A lot of these questions are like nascent in Homer, and then they, you know, get picked up by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and become more robust. And so for me, you know, I'm not uh, classically trained, but as I see my children going through a formation that I think is very good, what I've seen then is a need for uh, great books efforts that uh, can help adults then supplement or in certain ways, you know, be a remedial effort towards the education they received. And this is really then the impetus of our newest project, which is Ascend, the Great Books Podcast which I started to post about, you know, the small group on Twitter. I'm like, hey, we're getting together and talk. And then what, it, of course, what does everyone do? People comment and be like, I, I wish I had someone to read these with. Like, I, I'd like to read these texts. It's hard. You can just, it's hard to pick up the Iliad and just like cold read it. That's difficult. And I don't think we should pretend otherwise. And I think that, you know, when you come to these texts, like my opinion has always been that like the, the author's the teacher, like Homer's the teacher. And, but it always helps though to have someone who's kind of been through the class before. They've read the text before. They're more familiar. That can help the group. And so what we decided then was like, well, could we turn this into a podcast? Could we have the same slow chronological discussions through a text, have a lot of patience and put this in a weekly format for people? And that's what we've done. So now we're uh, launching our own uh, Homer in a Year, our Year of Homer, where we are going through the podcast, you know, one book of Homer per week. So we're going to spend six months on the Iliad, uh, six months on the Odyssey, and hopefully just introduce people to, I think, a lot of the nascent questions um, and insights that are raised into what's true, good, and beautiful in the West. Well, that's great to hear. I, I, I think it's especially important to read these things together as a group and with some guidance from someone, like you say, who, who has been through it before. Because, you know, one objection that might be raised about a kind of great books approach, which you yourself have uh, alluded to, is that uh, not all of these books, which are often called great, are perhaps the best things to be reading if we're really seeking the truth, right? 
it's it's possible uh, that through a, a kind of great books program, someone could become a kind of relativist because they're if they're not able to judge the books properly or um, they're not presented in the right light, people could easily become thrown off by just reading through the history of thought in the West, for instance. I think I think that's actually very common. No, I was going to say I think you're you're I think it's brilliant to kind of have it as an adult supplement to you know your life, uh, you know, to fill in the gaps in your own education rather than sort of making it the center focus of perhaps you know your K three education or your high school education because that would necessarily avoid the relativism, the issue of you know your seventeen reading marks and it's like whoa, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> You know, <laughs> why most Many Marxists act like they're college, 14 years yeah. old. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And as, you know, a mother that I, I want to, you know, my own sons to to read, that, you know, maybe future daughters read this stuff and enjoy this stuff and, and have it be a foundational text for them. You know, I myself want to, de- you know, delve deeper into that. And um, and I guess I'm wondering if how... How do you think you should formulate, you know, if you're spending a year on Homer, where do you go from there? How how do you do how would you determine how much time to spend on something and what is worth studying? Um, given, you know, everyone's limited time frame, the context of, you know, being busy adults. That's a great question. And it's, you know, as a preliminary, I, t- I completely agree with the danger. There is a danger in the great books. Um, that I think a lot of people read them. And you come out some type of cosmopolitan relativist, right? You, I've, I've read all these great men. I've read all these very intelligent men. They all disagree. Therefore, there is no truth. I'm better because I've kind of read these ideas and I'm exposed to them. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, like on Ascend, what we do is, and we had a lot of conversations about this, like, you know, do we just kind of like quietly go into the great books? Do we talk about what our standards are, et cetera? And at the end of the day, I think you have to uh, come with the mind of the church to the text. And for us, when you look at like a great books program, like where do you start? Why do you start with Homer? Why not Confucius or the Enuma Elish or like any of these other ancient texts? I think the general guidepost, both historically speaking and intellectually speaking, is the incarnation. So you know, when we're looking at the incarnation, we say, okay, well, what cultures, right, uh, kind of flowed into that? And so obviously you have Hebrew culture, the Old Testament. Obviously the Bible stands uh, alone. But I think it also can be kind of treated like a great book and, and come at that approach to it. But then you also see the Greeks. And then you see this like wonderful history of like Greek reason and Hebrew faith uh, coming together under Roman order, uh, prepared the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And since St. Paul tells us that our Lord came in the fullness of time, this is not accidental. And this is a mistake that we made, right? Uh, we make it very often. Pope Benedict, I think, pointed out well in his Regensburg address when he talked about multiculturalism which is we try to reinculturate the gospel, right? We try and play the role of providence. We're like, okay, well, we're going to, you know, divorce it from the Greek and even some, at times the Hebrew side and from the Roman side, and then we're going to reinculturate it into whatever ethics we have now, which of course just makes a gospel that looks like us, right? Every time. It's not surprising how this turns out. So I think in a lot of ways, like that's the standard. So Amanda, to your question, which I think is very good, is like, how do you judge like what to read? Because we could just read the Greeks and never, you know, spend the rest of our life on the Greeks, right? Or just not even get out of the Romans. So in a lot of ways, the first standard is, well, how how much did it play into the incarnation? So particularly before Christ, right? How much of this can we actually say, here are the questions, here are the main texts that we think actually cultivated the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. And I think the other way to look at it too is, 
then how how do the text interrelate? So a lot of people, the great books will talk about the great conversation. So you read Homer, and then when you read Plato's Republic, he's dialoguing with Homer, right? Plato's actually dialoguing with Homer and talking about where Homer Homer got it right, or mainly where Homer got it wrong. And so if you actually have read Homer, then you're actually stepping into that conversation and getting those fruits from it. So in a lot of ways, uh, I think you have to have patience because if you start to love the great books, you just want to sit down and read all of them. But I think a lot of ways you can start saying, okay, what are the major thinkers? And what are their major texts, like their primary texts that I can get kind of the fruit of what they were trying to teach us? Because I think there's a lot of historical value here in understanding not only the coming of Jesus Christ, but then after him, how these things developed, right? I mean, you can spend your whole life reading St. Augustine, but I think if you spend time with confessions, um, you know, maybe the city of God, I think a lot of it depends too on what your purpose is. So I teach great books also for our diaconate program. So another thing that we're blessed in Tulsa to have is that we are uh, permitted to do a great book sequencing as part of our uh, permanent diaconate formation program in the Diocese of Tulsa, which I don't know of any other diocese that does this. And so, for instance, you know, all things are judged good or bad according to their end. And so what is our purpose? What's our final end here with this education? Well, it's the form good deacons. And so for there, I tend to look at texts um, that also have a strong moral formation to them, right? So if you're going to read like Plato, well, if you're reading him academically, then you might be looking at, well, I want to spend a lot of time on the Timaeus. I want to spend a lot of time on some of these texts. But if I want to look at like moral formation, then like historically, a lot of people started with Alcibiades, right? Like you only have to know yourself first. So I think a lot of it is like, what's the goal, right? What is the goal? And so, because you also have a certain amount of time. I only have four years with the men in the diaconate program. And I complain all the time that I don't have enough time to teach all the books that I want, right? So then you've got to kind of whittle it down. And so I think a lot of it is, you know, what are the major players? Use Christ as the standard. What are their major texts that we can look at? Because you want to read it slowly. You will get a lot more benefit from reading, say, one book from St. Augustine. Just read his confessions and read it slowly over 10 months will be much, much better than trying to cram in City of God in like four weeks or something like that. I don't like the whole survey shallow approach, like nice, slow, deep read because it tends to be very formative uh, for the soul. Absolutely. Well, Chris, maybe we could bring you into the conversation here. Uh, you have your own uh, unique perspective on all of this, being a, an educator in the public school yourself, also homeschooling your own children and uh, developing uh, this liberal arts curriculum online, which uh, I have to admit that I, I'm a part of personally, so I can... Uh, uh, lay all the cards on the table there, but uh, but perhaps you could speak a little bit about uh, the liberal arts and your own approach to education. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So I'd like to say first that I think education should be in line with our end as human beings. And just like the Baltimore Catechism says that our purpose is to gain happiness in heaven and to do that, we need to know, love, and serve God in this life. So there are tons of things to read. There's so many approaches to to everything. So in my mind, what we should focus on is what's primary. I think it's what Ecclesiastes 12, 12, like there would never, never be an end of the publishing of books. So what do, what do we primarily want to learn? Well, St. Paul in his first letter to the Romans says that from the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world, we can um, understand from the things that are made, something like this. Um, the Catechism tells us, God speaks to man through the visible creation. The material cosmos is so presented to man's intelligence that he can read there the traces of its creator, these vestigia. Creation 
is God's first communication to mankind. And my thinking is that that's our primary natural education, the focus of it. St. John Chrysostom wrote that there are three sorts of revelation, three steps of God's revelation to man. The first, this initial step is creation. It's like the first um, blade of the plant coming out of the ground. It's the law of nature. Then the ear is the, say, the old law. And then the fruit is the new law. This first stage, this communication to us through creation should be, has to be the primary focus of our education, certainly for children. And then, of course, as, in as much as it's appropriate later on in life, um, there's something from this treatise against the pagans from St. Athanasius. And he writes, and I wanted to quote this, it is still possible for the soul to attain to a knowledge of God from the things that are seen for creation, as if in written characters and by means of its order and harmony, declares in a loud voice its own master and creator. He's suggesting here we can read God's language, God's word through the creation, through the natural world, through order and harmony. And I'd like to further suggest that that's what the liberal arts actually are. We study God's order through primarily the trivium and then this harmony through the quadrivium. So those are the classical liberal arts. And I'm, I'm not thinking of them in some sort of historical survey way. I realize there have been many different takes on it over time, obviously even within religious orders who had different focuses because of their particular charism and the needs of the time, but rather objectively looking at what would essentially be their character. So that's in general what I have to say about uh, the focus of education. I don't see why we would read anything else first besides those, since that's God's way of communicating himself to us outside of uh, revelation, outside of divine revelation. However, with that said, Liberal arts is used in, by a lot of people for a lot of different reasons and uh, from different viewpoints. So I think in addition to that, there's a particular method that they have to be studied to be studied correctly. Um, maybe you're familiar with this, this Aquinas thing from the De Veritate. Sometimes this passage is called um, the De Magistro, you know, on the teacher. And he suggests that, well, for something, for us to know something for sure, for certain, we have to begin from self-evident principles. And I think Catholics are open to this, that we have objective knowledge. It begins from these self-evident principles and it grows step by step through necessary connections to create whatever science so that the kernel of every single art or science is in the self-evident principles themselves applied to whatever the subject matter happens to be. Aquinas talks about this all the time. However, and this I think is key to this conversation, if, and this is from Aquinas, someone proposes to another certain ideas that are not self-evident, or if he does not manifest how they follow from self-evident principles, then he does not cause knowledge in that person, but rather opinion or belief. For those ideas that follow necessarily from the first self-evident principles have to be true, and those that are contrary to them have to be false. But to all other thing, ideas, he can give his assent or not. So if we're studying something called Latin Grammar 1, if we're studying um, really anything, any work of fiction, it may not. And fiction doesn't begin with self-evident principles. And as a result, by methodology, it's not teaching the truth. We might hear something true from a work of fiction, and it may resonate or not resonate with us. But we can't know for sure that it's true through the very method that it's written in. So the liberal arts themselves, if they're going to be arts, have to follow this path from self-evident truth to um, a conclusion from that self-evident truth. Those principles, in turn, are three. I think, at the kernel of every liberal art, unity, identity, and then I call it harmony, but maybe just difference is acceptable. 
that's at the foundation of every liberal art. It's the foundation of all human knowledge. And I think that's important in methodology and pedagogy for teaching these things rightly so that the kids see from the starting point of all their study that um, there's this basic path of truth that their minds can follow as their teacher instructs them, hopefully correctly in those different studies. And in a way, and this goes to uh, Boethius' De Trinitate, there's a little bit of an analogy to the Trinity itself, where certainly there's unity in Trinity. There's certainly equality. Um, and then the analogy falls apart a little bit because obviously there's not difference in the Trinity, but there's certainly, as Boethius points out, relation between the three persons. And that kernel plays out in creation. And we can see in all these different arts through these traces of God's um, God's work. So for me, that's that's the primary focus. And that's what uh, is the work that we're, we're doing in the Sal and, and so on. Uh, to back up just a bit, to draw out what I think both of you have, have spoken about a little bit here is uh, what 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 many people get wrong, I think, is the is the very purpose of education. Uh, even sometimes, I think Catholic educators don't necessarily see it in the in the in the big picture. That ultimately, we we can imbibe the kind of secular mentality that that education is just about, especially for children. I'm I'm speaking here. Education is just about setting them up for the best sort of life that they can have in this world uh, to to get them a good job so that they can support the family and all good things, of course, losing sight of the fact that ultimately everything is oriented to our ultimate supernatural end, which is a, a good little connection with uh, what we, we do here at the Josiahs, reminding everyone that that ultimately everything that we do, even in the natural world, in our natural lives, is, is oriented to our supernatural life, uh, is oriented to heaven, is oriented to our holiness and salvation and, and one day union with God. So too with education. And I think uh, this is a, a little bit of what, uh, what Chris was talking about with the, the trivium and quadrivium. By, by studying um, the order that exists in, in the world around us is our first kind of step on a path that should lead us to heaven, really. Ultimately, the, the queen of the sciences being theology because we're actually contemplating the divine. We're, we're, we're coming into union with with the truth itself. Um, the historian Henry Chadwick has a, a book about Boethius, and he talks about how Boethius viewed education, the liberal arts, as a as a progression. Uh, Chadwick doesn't use the, the metaphor of a ladder, but he says it, it's almost, it's like gradually growing uplands. You know, you, you start off with foothills until ultimately you're in this this lofty mountain range that reaches up into the heavens. So the liberal arts, the trivium and quadrivium are the sort of foothills uh, of education, which then leads you into philosophy, a little bit higher mountains, and then ultimately up to this 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 height of of theology, which which brings us up to heaven itself, really. So that there's this integrated path, I think, is, is a very important, uh, an important thing that the liberal arts teach us about education, uh, if that if that makes sense. Anybody wants to comment on that? Yeah, definitely. And one thing I'd like to say about, say, arithmetic, this liberal art, and I think today when people hear arithmetic, they think elementary school, um, the four operations, and that's not what it is. As you know, the De Arithmetica from Boethius is really a number theory. And that work, the first work of the quadrivium, 
is a curriculum that I don't really think is taught. I don't think it's understood. And it's so foundational to helping people move on and understanding the order of the universe and the beauty of the universe. Um, just as an example, when, uh, say, there are a couple of Renaissance uh, writers, there's this Alberti, you know, he wrote about De Pictura on painting, then another book on architecture. When he writes about beauty and the foundations of beauty in architecture and painting, he writes about the numerical, numerical relationships from the, the De Arithmetica. When Fuchs, the man who wrote the Gradusad Parnassum, which is seen as really foundational for the Palestinian Renaissance polyphony, I guess, method or approach, his first book in that, which I don't think is translated to English, is his take on the Boethian arithmetic, uh, arithmetic. Excuse me. So these liberal arts, as you're saying, I think do lead us in this progression to understand God's order if we study the things that are actually the liberal arts and not just the titles. So if you take a course in grammar, if you take a course in, in logic, even if it's called Aristotelian logic, it may not actually be the liberal art that inspired um, generations past that people actually studied in real life. And that, I think, is one of the maybe challenges of the liberal arts or classical movement today is that there are these things named the things and they're not. I was on a website of, I'm sure, well-meaning people. I'm not being polemic, polemical here at all. But there's a picture of Boethius next to their math program. And their math program was like Saxon math, which is not, not what we're talking about. But they didn't have the picture of the author of Saxon math. It was Boethius. And that's, again, I'm not suggesting there was any malintent, but it's just not accurate. And there's, there's a real curriculum there that I think if students, again, get in touch with, will, again, get some of these fruits from the past because we're understanding more about God's creation and then as a result, in a small way, God himself. I think one thing, you know, as an administrator is that to your point about is everything that comes out calling itself classical or liberal arts actually, you know, the real deal. I mean, a lot of ways our demand is outpacing what we actually have, um, you know, available. Right. So like right now, if you're trying to hire like actually classical education teachers or like admin, which are even harder to find. Right. It's actually very, very difficult right now to find these people. So there's this huge demand. And then sometimes you're kind of getting a rush and a, kind of like a repackaging of things. You're like, well, I'm not entirely sure this is classical. I think we might have just slapped, you know, some, uh, you know, both face on it and we're, you know, we're calling it good. So I do think this is a challenge right now. Now, granted, I think there are a lot of good groups that are trying to form teachers and et cetera that I'm very uh, thankful for that I think are doing good work here. You know, I mainly teach adults. That's mainly what I teach outside of my own children. I mainly teach adults, right? So in the diaconate program, a lot of our guys are in their 40s and 50s. And it's the first time they've really picked up a book like this. And to go back to one of the father's comments, you know, a lot of our modern education is just simply training. They're just kind of training you to be a, a cog in the machine and, and do some kind of societal function. And everything else is, um, you know, just kind of relativistic and doesn't matter. So one of the things that I, I have found really striking in trying to teach adults is just how little cultivation of the imagination has happened up to that point, right? So if they're reading the Iliad, reading the Odyssey, sometimes they really, really struggle uh, to think on multiple layers, right? That there's a literal and there might also be, you know, an allegorical and a moral and anagogical. Like these things are a struggle simply because they have no habit. And so I'm curious, you know, Chris, maybe from your perspective, is what is the role of cultivating the imagination in the liberal arts, particularly in, in children, right? Because I tend to, on my own, uh, I read to my children every night and I try and read them, you know, proportionate great stories, right? We're reading fairy tales. We're reading, right now we're going through an American folklore 
uh, thing of like Johnny Appleseed and a bunch of other tales that I didn't even know existed and trying to actually cult that, cultivate that imagination. Because I think, you know, as they have this baptized imagination in the faith, you have to have a certain amount of imagination that is receptive to the gospel and understanding like the gospel narrative. So where do you see like the cultivation of imagination, you know, for kids going through like a classical or liberal arts program? Sure. Um, well, two things come to mind. Firstly, within the liberal art itself, grammar, um, not only do you learn the grammar rules, but then there are works of literature that you can read within that. And I think the Jesuits did a great job um, with that. Maybe that was their strongest, um, the aspect of their ratio studiorum. So, for example, um, within our program, we do this too, but it's like the, the fables of Phaedrus. Um, the kids are reading things like this. So it's in Latin. Um, we have sort of graded readers. So for the kids that haven't hit verbs yet, they can still, once they get through some declensions, they can read those things um, in Latin and still um, have some sort of fiction as a result of of the study. It's not, the fiction's not really a focus, but it is a chance to, um, I guess, just read some more things. So I don't really see the reading of fiction as part of the liberal arts. However, I think that's not to push aside your point. The training of the imagination with things that are wholesome and good and maybe formed in a culture that that we happen to find valuable is, is great. My kids read the same things. You know, they read um, Tolkien and folk tales and Grimm and uh, Andrew Lang fairy tales. All these things, they're formed with, for, but it's for fun. It's not the education part. It's not their school time. It's what they read for leisure. And that I think it's not it's not bad, it, but it's it's what is it's kind of um, not the academic part. Not that there aren't academic things about reading these things, but it's not really the focus, other than something for fun or something that, as you're saying, might form wholesome images. Um, in addition to that, outside of the academics, and I I think we're on the same page with this is having a small family and that's in touch with nature. Like my my family here, we're on a little farm. You know, we have sheep and chickens and things like this. And as a result, the kids grow up knowing a lot about some of the maybe gospel or even Old Testament references because they see them outside part of their day-to-day life. And I realize that's not true for everyone. Not everyone lives on a farm, nor do they have to. However, an interaction with the natural world on a day-to-day basis is another formative thing. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about with forming imagination. So I guess I would say both nature fiction outside of the curriculum and then it, it, maybe in a smaller restricted way some of these easier texts um, within the curriculum within latin or, or greek curriculum would still fall within the liberal arts yeah we're very um we're incarnational creatures right we're embodied and so i think that they talk about the farm I, i'm out here in rural oklahoma on a few acres we don't have sheep uh, we have some chickens and geese we got all birds somehow we've got ducks and geese and all kinds of stuff and it was like negative 16 here. My geese were just like skating around on the ice like nothing was going on. I was really impressed because I thought they were just all going to die. But it's great. I'm really impressed. So, you know, but I do think there's like a certain poetics, like a kind of a, a, a preliminary poetics that comes in with just simply a realism, like what's real, right? And so I think your kids actually being outside, being around animals, uh, being out in nature, if you don't have, obviously, you know, you don't have to go buy a farm uh, to raise your children correctly, but spending time in nature, going camping, these kind of things. I mean, I think sometimes we undervalue how much that can actually be formative uh, for a child. Like, you know, if you've got little boys, just like send them outside with sticks and let them dig and, you know, get dirty. It's amazing how much, you know, I think that works. And also it's alternative, right? Um, Mitigating like screens and things that I think that tend to be very flattening 
uh, to the imagination, right? Because they spoon feed you too much and your mind gets very lazy. So I do think like as we kind of look at education as a whole, whether it's great books or classical or liberal arts, there's also like an incarnational aspect, right? Of that original kind of poetics that we are embodied and we do need to have uh, interactions with the real. And then I think that also uh, it does, like you said, it illuminates then certain things in the texts. Our Alcuin Institute one time famously hosted a diocesan event in which we slaughtered a sheep. Uh, we got lots of commentary on it. and But it was really interesting that a lot of my um, persons in uh, what's now OCIA went to the event. And they're, I mean, these just people that are not, this is not their wheelhouse, right? It's way outside their ambit. And they came back and they could not stop talking about it. And the reason was, is that, you know, so many things in the Old Testament and even the New Testament about sheep and about to the slaughter and silent before the slaughter and all these things, all these things don't mean anything to us. We've never seen any of these things anymore. What was commonplace back then? And for them to see this actually happen, all of a sudden that just like very quaint kind of real thing then illuminated all of these biblical passages. And it started with something, an, an engagement with the real, which, you know, could be, you know, slaughtering an animal. I just wanted to go back to something that I think uh, both of you have alluded to, and that's, you know, obviously, you know, where education is right now is is not desirable. You know, we feel like we're just training kids to be like spreadsheet machines, and obviously that's not desirable. But to some extent, we do, you know, and that and this is very traditional. We always need training for a trade, for a future, for for some especially if we're expecting, you know, our children to grow up and have some sort of, you know, basic material prosperity, like that's our hope for our children. How do we balance that with the sort of the formation we're talking about here? And, you know, I know some of the criticism is is that, well, you know, that formation was for a medieval priest. You know, that wouldn't have been for the, you know, the the young boy learning a trade who's apprenticed for 12 years. And, you know, so how do we respond to that criticism and how do we balance the real need for, you know, our children to to have, you know, some sort of material prosperity that will enable them to be, you know, mm-hmm. live on a basic level of, uh, you know, you'll defeat a family, right? Um, live on a single income, which is increasingly difficult. Sure. Uh, just to jump in, I guess, um, firstly, that that maybe is one of the dangers of making the curriculum culture specific. Or, or time period specific. So I would say the liberal arts are as relevant today as they were at the beginning of time because they still, through the natural world, communicate the same message God communicated in creation. It's the same exact message. So it's always relevant. It's always there for us. So it's not, it's not just, and I'm not saying you were saying that, but if someone was going to bring that criticism up, I would say it's ever new. Every morning, you can go outside and continue to reflect on these things through the course of study in conjunction with the natural world. Um, secondly, I my view is that as much as possible, the liberal arts should be an elementary, mainly for Latin grammar, middle school, introduction to Greek grammar, and then the quadrivium and some of the late other parts of the trivium for the high school years so that in college, kids can specialize. And again, I'm not saying this to be negative or step on anyone's toes, but just before this recording today, I just went online and looked at a couple of uh, what are called liberal arts colleges. And for on-campus tuition, it's over $40,000 a year. I realized, you know, for some kids, their tuition uh, things and financial aid, but that $160,000 for something that if, if we were on, our, on it, 
maybe we could offer them at a younger time that would give them that formation so that going ahead where they have to pay for this stuff, they might be able then to specialize and, and not have this over $100,000 of debt with, I don't know, some text that they've read. And I'm not saying that's worthless, but that's a, that's a high price tag. Yeah, that's more of the European model, right? Like they, they generally will specialize by the time they're in university level and having gotten the sort of foundational studies done in, in high school, I suppose. Yeah, because I think one way to push back on that too is to simply to state that uh, we over-specialize, you know, too early, right? And so then we, we've got people trying to run our elementary schools that are like, you know, our second graders need to be taking computer class. It's like, do you do you have any idea what a computer is going to be like by the time they actually have to engage one in any like meaningful way? It's going to be completely different. Like this is ridiculous. Like don't. And so I think one way about this is like we specialize too early. And so I do agree that like a very robust classical liberal arts education at, on an elementary school level and kind of into the high school, I think, can be incredibly useful. And then when you go into college, I think that's where the specialization kicks in. And I do think there are some colleges that are trying to do unique work of saying like, you know, for two years, you're going to have a very robust, would probably be more a great books program. And then two years after that, then you specialize. And so I think they're kind of hitting that, that middle area of like, well, you know, how do I get a familiarity with a lot of the tradition, a lot of the great thinkers, a lot of the great texts, but I also can graduate, be an accountant or get set up for med school or something like that. So I think there are a few creative solutions there. Cause I do agree. I think it's a you know, should everyone go to like Thomas Aquinas College? I don't know. It doesn't seem like that, right? I mean, I do I wish I went? Yes, I look at their curriculum like that would be awesome. I would love to go through that. But again, things like cost and practicality. And, you know, I also have to take care of family. And so I think there are some good hybrid programs that people can look at. Yeah, I think it's important what you've talked about here with, with specialization um, to have especially children to raise them with a foundation in the in the more liberal arts I think is very important nowadays there's that acronym that makes my skin crawl whenever I hear it stem which seems to be the uh, the focus of, of of every school that I've I've walked into any and uh, in the recent years public private Catholic not that um, again the it's a, just a sort of very practical mentality that that education is only about you know, forming these children into, you know, little engineers. Everybody seems to go to college for engineering these days. Not that there's anything wrong with that for particular people, but but you're missing something, I think, if if all your education is is only geared to those uh, more practical arts and then you, you're losing the uh, the more foundational things. Uh, this is tied, I, I think maybe we need to define our terms a little bit because as as we've mentioned, the liberal arts mean uh, different things to different people. And uh, a lot of um, a lot of so-called liberal arts programs today are based on a particular model of the liberal arts. That, uh, if you dig a little bit deeper, it's not there's there's not much to it historically, and um, uh, specifically the kind of approach that was invented by Dorothy Sayers in the 1940s. Uh, a lot of the Catholic, even Catholic liberal arts programs today are, are are founded on ideas from Dorothy Sayers, who, if if I'm I'm getting her right, there's not a whole lot of focus on the on the quadrivium, especially the the classical liberal arts of the quadrivium and the trivium. She kind of um, transforms completely, so that grammar, logic, and rhetoric are not so much arts in themselves as phases in childhood 
developmental psychology. Um, so maybe Chris, you could you could speak to us a little bit about this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting way that this lost tools of learning speech came to pass. Dorothy Sayers was a reader, and she was really focused in modern languages at Oxford. She was a French person. Uh, that was her focus. And anyway, she worked in an ad agency for almost a decade, and World War II was brewing. And she was concerned that people were not really fit to respond to propaganda, that they were going to become victim to this. And I think she wanted to be able to respond to this in some way. So she reads this book, Total Education by M.L. Jacks. He was the head of Oxford's education department. And in it, he's critical of um, medieval curriculum. So the liberal arts of the time. And she disagreed with that. She thought he was too hard on, on this kind of approach. She thought there's some value in it. And he, she let him know about that. So she wrote a letter and he wrote back saying, well, why don't you come and give a talk about it? There's a summer series of lectures you can talk then. So she wrote this Lost Tools of Learning. So that's just a little bit of the context. And as you said, in it, she creates broadcloth, brand new things. She makes the trivium psychological stages, developmental stages. And the quadrivium, she doesn't know what to do with. She wasn't a math person to begin with. She never was. Um, if you look at her young life and into Oxford, she struggled at every stage, which is neither here nor there, but um, it just wasn't her focus. So the quadrivium disappears and the, quad the trivium becomes something new. And really, if you look at what she does, she says in her own words that, you know, the, the first stage, she doesn't really add much besides, outside of the modern approach besides Latin grammar. The middle thing, the logic thing is more about um, learning how to respond to people's arguments or maybe notice an um, incorrect inference than making any positive statements about reality. And that should shock any Catholic. Logic's not about making positive statements um, about reality. This is co completely disconnected from the real. You know, this is this uh, like a sort of maybe Christian existentialist view. This is not, in my view, the right direction at all. And then when she gets to finally the rhetoric stage, she has almost nothing to say. If you read the speech, she has, I think, nothing in terms of curriculum. It's, it's open to a sort of exploration of combining different ideas. So in essence, her approach gives us a modern curriculum with Latin grammar and then some sort of speaking skills, some logic uh, practice. And, and that's, that's it. That's what you get. And I don't think that represents in any historical way what the classical liberal arts are. Certainly not in the, in the Catholic tradition. I don't think historically ever. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a dog in this fight. Um, it's kind of outside my ambit to a certain degree, but it, it reminds me of, you know, we see these like beautiful cathedrals and, and things like this in, in Europe and some inside of, of America. And, you know, this, it's become somewhat, um, you know, somewhat um, hackneyed online, though, to make this comment of like, you know, why don't we build these today? And the response is like, well, we don't even know how. Right, like, like we're we're living in the the remnant of this, and so as I listen, this is something that occurs to me is is just simply like you know we're trying desperately to claw back uh, a level of education that would have been very normative for our forefathers, but none of us, <clears throat> to a certain degree, right, none of us were actually formed in this, and so you're trying to you, know, you can't give something you don't have, and so we're we're I feel like particularly for the sake of our children, we're trying to desperately figure something out and hand it on. And so, you know, if your critique is correct, it doesn't surprise me that then, you know, some artificialities can pop up that have a veneer of looking like something old, but actually they're still just kind of repackaged modernity. But where would you, you know, 
I guess, where would you go then to be like, uh, here is, you know, the authentic liberal arts, right? Where, where do we actually discover that? Well, for me to answer this question, I think would be self-serving because this is, you know, I have this program, this Septem Artes Liberales. I don't know how else to answer it. I'm, I'm but trying. That's fine with me. I mean, if someone asks me if I have any good recommendations for a great books podcast, I think I'm going to know what I'm going to tell them. So yeah, go ahead. So for example, for Latin Grammar 1, we're translating from um, Alvarez, the, the Jesuit Alvarez, three books of grammar. And and I, I mean, literally, we have the PDF file of the hundreds of pages of Alvarez, and we're translating his Latin and representing that to kids so they can study it today. And along with that, the liberal arts approach I mentioned, proceeding from self-evident principles, appear in our lesson texts age appropriately so kids can understand, and again, in a way that would make sense for them, this progress through the Latin grammar. So that, that's what we're using. The Boethius text I mentioned, De Arithmetica, uh, our kids in our program work through that. And my English translation, our, our first logic course, um, Father Tveit's translated Boethius, well, he's done more than this, but translated Boethius' um, commentary on Porphyry. And that's step one for us. So we're making an effort to translate the real texts, which is time consuming, and re-presenting that to kids today um, through our program. That's, that's what we're trying to do. I think the the quadrivium the quadrivium uh, presents its own sort of unique set of of issues for for modern educators or, or people approaching these things today. Um, the trivium maybe we could sort of, if we break away from the, the Sayers approach of, of phases, we could see that there's there's a content that we can learn about grammar, about logic, about rhetoric, uh, but the four arts of the quadrivium are mathematical. Uh, and as Chris mentioned before, they're not, it's, we're not talking mat modern math. We're talking uh, classical arithmetic, geometry, music, even in, a, in a, a numerical sense, and astronomy. So this is the frequent uh, objection you're going to, to find is, why would anybody study, especially astronomy? I mean, of the four, astronomy, classical astronomy, astronomy uh, ancient astronomy is going to be the, the biggest objection, especially from people coming from the kind of STEM mentality. Why would we ever study these things when we when we have modern algebra? We have, you know, modern, you know, whatever other other kind of uh, scientific or, or musical fields you might want to insert. So, so what is there about the classical approach to quadrivium that is relevant to today? Sure. Well, I think if you think of even the first four whole numbers, one, two, three, four. In their relationships, you see the beginning of, say, classical music, the classical liberal art music, so that the two to one relationship is the octave. Um, the three to two is a sesquialter, uh, the fifth, I'm sorry. And then the four to three is the sesquitertian or the fourth. Nine to eight relationship is the tone. These are the basics of harmony. These are how tones um, and harmonies are formed in music. And that's relevant to everyone. Um, I think students today, music students would want to know that and also want to know where it all comes from. So to be able to articulate from number one, how a system of harmony develops in a, in a way that makes sense and is not that hard to follow if you just read the books, um, is valuable. Um, geometry is the same. And I think Euclidean geometry still holds, holds value, beginning from a point and developing a system of geometry from that. I don't know if that's the one 
that would have as much trouble being accepted. Sure, the astronomy, <laughs> with everything that's known today, um, why even bother? There's a Jesuit, um, Andre Taquette, who wrote an astronomy after Kepler. So he, in his preface to his book, Astronomia, mentions that, yeah, these people have done amazing things in pushing the frontiers of astronomy, but they didn't seem as interested in preserving a system that begins from number one and allows you to go step by step all the way to charting the apparent motion of these things that we can see with our, our own human eyes in the sky. And there's a system that used to do that, and he didn't want to let that go entirely either. So I, I think today for the, um, classical astronomy, it's still valuable for people to be able to look into the sky and have a sense of why these things are moving the way they are as they perceive them. And I think maybe this is an analogy that stretches too far, maybe not. If there was a painter that made a painting for a viewer and painted it with that viewer in mind, and then hundreds of years later, someone else said, well, we're going to get to the bottom of the meaning of this painting, and they ignore the image on the painting, but study the, the chemical structure of the um, paint itself, the canvas and the wood, and they say, now we really understand it. They're missing the point. When God created the world, he created it for humans experiencing it as unified human beings, not humans living at a telescopic or microscopic level. We'll never experience life at either of those levels. Even though I think they provide important ancillary information, we'll always experience it um, primarily as we are. And classical astronomy responds to that and provides a systematic way that builds from, number one, through Euclidean geometry, um, and charts that onto a sphere so they can predict the movements of what we see with these apparent motions. People still call it a sunset and a sunrise. There's still some truth to that. I think, too, this is where I think there's a certain uh, level of despair that can kick in, right? Because you're just like, this is beautiful. And what you realize, right, is that we live in a cosmos. And, you know, truth is the conformity of the mind to reality. And reality is ordered and beautiful. And I think the liberal arts, in their best sense, are really doing that, right? They're introducing the mind uh, to the beauty of reality. But then, you know, if you're 35 and you just now figure out like, oh, by the way, there, here was this education that I missed, right? So you're, you're crawling out of the cave and you've realized that there's a fire and, you know, you're, I'm trying to figure out what the shadows are on the ground outside while people are staring at the sun and have for the last, you know, 15 years. You know, I, I think a certain level of despair can kick in. I think this is, you know, the circle back. This is why I kind of look at the great books as a supplement, right? Or a remedial thing, right? They're not, they're not meant to replace the liberal arts. And even when they launched, right, that whole term, the great books, and they launched in the 1950s. I mean, go back and read the original essays when they're launching these, right? Which is what Hutchins and, and uh, Werner Almer, where they're like, it's so funny. They're talking then about education being in crisis, right? That education is just being tossed into the abyss, and for most of us, we're like, man, we'd like to probably go back to what they were doing, uh, you know, in the 50s. And if they saw what we were doing today, it'd be terrible. But I think that, you know, for a lot of people, particularly adults that are that are busy, you know, what do you do? You got to go back to a four-year college and, and study classical liberal arts, or I'm going to start, you know, copying my uh, daughter's uh, fourth grade classical uh, homework and trying to, you know, lead my way through it. So I think the great books can be a good supplement uh, to just kind of introduce you to a lot of these perennial questions and truths that are kind of raised historically throughout time, right? But I think they they very much complement but don't replace what a robust liberal arts would be because their original impetus was that the liberal arts were collapsing in American education. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you uh, you speak about the fact that 
the truth and true knowledge is about this sort of uh, identity or equality equation between the mind and how things truly are. Uh, Deacon Garlic, I, I read something you had written on the um, Alcuin Institute website, and you quoted uh, the great Dominican Sertillange, his book, The Intellectual Life, and he said that as the, the very purpose of study is that the order of the mind must correspond to the order of things. And unfortunately, that that gets lost even in, in Catholic thought. Uh, you have people like Maurice Blondel who want to redefine truth as uh, as something more dynamic and flexible. Uh, but but at the heart of our education, ultimately, again, if we're aiming at union with the divine, we have to bring our mind into the order, uh, into harmony, into conformity with the way things truly are. First of all, the things that we see in front of us that God has put there in order to lead us to him. Uh, so, so leading us from these more basic studies of the liberal arts to philosophy, ultimately the heights of theology. Yeah. Modernity asks us to do the exact opposite, right? Truth is the truth is the conformity of the mind to reality and everything in our culture today is telling us that reality has to conform to our minds, right? So we're, we're being invited to participate into artificialities and false realities because we think our mind is the thing that actually establishes truth. And so the beauty, I think, of, say, the liberal arts, the classical education, the study of the great books, you know, in, in the best sense of the term, is, is really that exactly, that we're going to conform our minds to the beauty of reality. But that, that can be difficult, right? If you go back and read The Cave, which again is, you know, everyone's read it, so it's hard to appeal to it at times. But one of the words that Plato uses throughout the entire text is compel. We have to be compelled, right? The guy that's actually getting forced out of the cave is being forced. It's difficult. We're comfortable. We want to sit in front of the shadows and get rewards, you know, for reading them and doing things like this. And actually turning around and ascending out of our false realities is hard and it's difficult. And I think it's particularly difficult uh, as an adult, right? If you're in your 50s and you just now realize this has happened, it's very difficult. But I think, you know, hope endures. And I think that no matter where you are in your own walk, uh, you know, there's a, the nice thing is that there's so many different efforts to actually help you in your education. Well, that's great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. And uh, thank you to all those who helped put this together. Amanda, thanks as always. And to uh, our producer behind the scenes, Thanks to Jonathan Colbraith for our music at the beginning and the end of the episode. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our benefactors. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of the Josiah's Podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future, please head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Josiah's to help make that possible if you can. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on the site formerly known as Twitter and on Facebook, can check out our law blog, Jus at Justitium, and of course, find us most importantly at thejosias.com.